0: Today our Bible reading comes from 1 Kings 21, 1 to 19. Some time later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, "Let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or, if you prefer," I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Jehob, sorry, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me a vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters he wrote, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside in the city, outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. This is the word of the Lord.
1: One of uh, my favorite things growing up, unsurprisingly, was holidays. Not a big surprise, hopefully. Um, But one of my favourite things about holidays was actually the kind of holidays we went on, and that was we went on a lot of road trips. So we spent a lot of the time in the car. Now with small children, I kind of wonder why my parents chose to go through such hell. But uh, one of the practices that we did do was uh, we played audiobooks. Uh, Maybe you have done this with your children or, or do currently do it. And one of my favourite ones was um, The Dawn Treader, uh, a book by C.S. Lewis, part of the Narnia series, and uh, a great tale and adventure of a ship in search for lost nobles, these kings that um, were uh, Prince Caspian's fathers uh, that were faithful and true and have been lost at sea And so they search out and go on this quest. And just as a young boy, um, particularly a young boy who spent a lot of time growing up sailing, you know, my mind just was captured by this story. And towards the end of the trip, there's the tale where they approach the darkness. It's talked about as the Dark Islands. A darkness into which they sail, where they can't see the end of the ship. A darkness so thick that they don't know what is to come. And they hear crying out, and so they pull up alongside the screaming and the crying, and they find a man who calls for their assistance, and they pull him up on board, And as soon as he lands on the deck, he calls out for them to fly, to flee, to get out of this place, this place where dreams come true. And what happens is the shipmates start to go, This is where dreams come true? Amazing, incredible. Why are we fleeing? And he responds, he says, no, no, didn't you hear me? This is the place where dreams come true. All dreams. And it says, in a moment, every shipmate was silenced. And then they scrambled for the ropes and the sails and the oars. Why? Because each remembered dreams, fears, and anxieties that they had that they couldn't bear to face. In our story this morning, Naboth, he faces the reality of that. He kind of faces the worst of nightmares coming true around him. The king meant to be God's representative, comes to his summer house next door, looks and sees Naboth's vineyard and says, I want that. And he says, I will give you a fair price for it. More than that, I will buy you a better vineyard if you want. If you so choose it, I will get you a better vineyard. And we don't know a lot about Naboth, but we, here's what we do know. He responds to Ahab in verse 3 saying, The Lord forget, forbid it that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. See, what he's referring to is when they first came into the promised land, God divided up the land between families and tribes so that there wouldn't be civil war. So that everyone would have kind of a fair and reasonable kind of part of the land and resources and there wouldn't be these kind of power dynamics or kind of thieving and kind of that everyone would be looked after. And God said then in Leviticus, he said, don't sell the land to each other so that they wouldn't play these kind of game of thrones, power dynamics, that people would be cared for well and evenly. In extreme cases of debt or poverty, you could sell your land, but at every seven years, all land sold and slaves would be returned to their original owners. Slaves freed, land returned. And so that's what Naboth's referring to. No, 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 no. God told me, God told us long ago, this is the land that has been assigned for me and my family. He is a man who knows the promises and word of God and values faithfulness to them. Values it more than riches or wealth, right? I'll buy you a better vineyard a better piece of land. I will pay you handsomely for it. And he values faithfulness more than he fears conflict or dislocation. Right? He values it more than comfort, and he values it more than he fears conflict. Can you imagine the situation he is in? A commoner and a king. You maybe have had disagreements with your neighbours. I know, some of you have told me about it. Here's where you get off lightly. Your next door neighbour isn't a king. Thankfully. (laughs) Right. Your next door neighbour, if you have a disagreement with, they don't control your taxes. If you have a falling out with the person you share a fence with, they don't own an army. They don't control trade. the fence isn't a wall and yet this is the situation Naboth is in literally conflict with his next-door neighbor who is the king and it's even worse back then because the king in an ancient near eastern society had ultimate power in a way that a prime minister or a president doesn't doesn't anymore so back then if you were the king in kind of an ancient Near Eastern country, you had almost complete power and you could kill next to whoever you wanted for next to no reason. So if somebody didn't please you, if somebody annoyed or frustrated you, you could just click your fingers and they would be taken away. You don't have to give a reason. Someone gives your four-year-old a recorder. Go on. (laughs) Let them listen to that recorder for every day of their life, right? And yet, despite all this, Naboth says, No, no, the Lord forbid it that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. He knows the conflict that's coming. Right? He's not ignorant of what's happening. What's fascinating is Ahab's response, right? Ahab goes to his bedroom, and I heard some of you laughing at this, and I think you're meant to laugh at this, right? In the passage, it's it's kind of comical. He goes back to his bedroom and he's kind of having a tantrum, a little bit like a six-year-old, just on his bed going, Naboth wouldn't sell me his land. I'm not even going to eat anymore. It's like, this is why Jezebel comes in. She goes, are you a king? Like, are you a king or are you a toddler? Here he is, throwing a tantrum, grumbling and whinging. And what does he do? He seeks out an ally. Find someone who will take on his side. More than that, who will go further, advocate on his behalf and, and avenge on his behalf. You know, he brings in a third person into this Dynamic. He triangulates, right? And ultimately, his passiveness and his triangulating causes the death of Naboth. And if you read two kings, Naboth's sons as well. You see, because of this event, it's not just Naboth that gets killed, his sons get killed as well. And so here's a few of the quick lessons we learn, right? One, conflict will come. Godliness isn't an antidote or a protection. Godliness is no guarantee that life will go smoothly for you. Being faithful doesn't mean that conflict won't arise. In fact, sometimes being godly will be the very thing that will bring conflict into your path. For some of you, life has got harder since choosing to follow Jesus rather than easier. I know this is a bit of my parents' story, right? They would come to church every Sunday, but... For the most part, it didn't really affect our our week, right? My parents would still kind of live their life, still um, probably drink too much. And uh, like, it just didn't really affect Monday to Friday. We got a bit older. A few things happened in life and mum and dad started following Jesus and taking him more seriously. He became more prominent and they surrendered more and more of their life over. And you know what happened? They lost friendships. people walked away. That sometimes you can do everything right and conflict will still come. Secondly, you can't control the other person, their perspective, and ultimately their actions. And there's some sense, if you hear that, which is freeing, and there's another sense, if you get that, that's terrifying. You can't control what someone else is going to think about you, how they're going to respond to you. You can't control whether another person is actually going to listen to you. Sure, you can increase your volume, but you can't control whether those words are going to resonate. In your marriage, in your friendships, in your church relationships, you can't control how the other person is going to respond, how they're going to think, their perspective. You are called to be responsible for how you think, for responsible how you act. You are responsible for you being a good friend. You are responsible for being generous. You are responsible for you being kind. You are responsible for you being gracious and sympathetic and and standing firm where you need to stand firm and to put an arm around people who you need to put an arm around. You are responsible for your actions. And you can't control how someone else is going to respond, or act. You need to think about what can you do under God in this situation. And let me just give one warning on this front. You need to be very careful, I think, in this space to go, okay, I'm only responsible for me and I need to kind of honour God and do what's right here regardless of how they act and even if they are self-centered, even if they continue to gossip, even if they continue to wound, even if they continue to hurt, even if they, even if they, even if they. Let me just say one thing. You need to be very careful in this space not to take on a certain level of kind of superiority cons- complex. Right, where you start to think, that you're the one who's being faithful, and everyone else just are wayward idiots. And you might not use that language, but the resentment grows, or, or the bitterness bleeds in. Even 10 years after reading it, I'm still struck by what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says when he says, when a brother or sister sins against me, he's talking in our church relationships, he says, when a brother or sister sins against me, is it not an opportunity for me to give thanks that that brother, that that sister is saved not by their own works or merits but like me, by grace alone. I don't know about you, but I don't think that way when my wife and I have an argument. I don't think that way when I have conflict in friendships. I don't think that way when I feel entitled. I don't think that way when I feel hurt and wounded or betrayed, I don't think that way when I reach out for alliances in a triangulating manner. And yet the Word of God would encourage us to be people that that walk in radical forgiveness, that seek to work hard at reconciliation, that people that don't give up on friendships where there's conflict. And yet, we are also called to be people who do initiate conflict where needed. Did you hear it in the end of the passage, right? In the end of the story, Elijah is sent to confront. He's sent to... To start conflict with Ahab. And so, conflict will come. You can only control yourself. And sometimes, conflict is necessary for godliness. Difficult conversations are needed. Elijah is not sent to King Ahab to give him a hug. But to tell him, see where those dogs are licking up the blood... They will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. <laughs> you, know how, you know how King Ahab actually responds? He put, repents and puts on sackclothes and ashes. And this is the crazy thing. Verse, just a few verses in chapter 22, he's, he's spoken of and it says... No one in all Israel up until this stage had had been so wicked as King Ahab. And then two verses later, he repents. And God says he will relent from his judgment against this man. Why? Because Elijah has, in the right and proper way, understood that conflict is necessary where the Word of God directs it. And so what are we to do? What are we to do in this world where we actually can control such so little and where power and oppression and conflict are so prevalent? What are we to do when we find ourselves sailing into the darkness? In the place where our dreams, our fears, our nightmares are becoming a reality. The model is given to us in the greater Naboth. The greater Naboth who finds himself in a vineyard, in a garden who, like Naboth, has had two witnesses, two false witnesses kind of conjured up to give a false testimony about blasphemy. And how does the greater Naboth, this one Jesus, how does he deal with the corruption and the conflict? And how is it that he deals with his own fears and with his own anxieties. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus has deals with anxieties, that he feels these fears, he knows those that crippling overwhelmedness? How is it that he deals with it? He prays his fears... In religious circles, uh, there's, uh, usually the way you deal with anxiety is by pretending it's not there. Some of you grew up in this house, kind of household, right? It's kind of really common back in ancient times, and in the 60s, also ancient times. <laughs> where you just pretended like your fears or anxieties, that it wasn't real. You kind of tried to bury them, tried to cover them up kind of push them away. To deny them. Very, very common in religious kind of circles. And the opposite is kind of true now in our current climate. Right? Don't deny your anxieties, but rather express them. Vent them almost as if um, it is a good in and of itself. And yet, Jesus neither is unaware of his anxieties nor nor overawed by them. He neither stuffs them away nor bows to them. He doesn't deny them or vent them. He prays his fears. And this is what's modelled all through scriptures. This is what the Psalms are. They are people praying their fears, people praying their anxieties, people praying their tears. People bringing their tremblings and their worries and their concerns, their their dreams. And all the darkness that that is and fears that that is and bringing them before God and praying them and just kind of laying them out, giving them oxygen before the foot before the feet of the King of Kings. Kind of holding them in His presence to cast our anxieties on Him and bring them before the One who controls the winds and the tides. This is what we sung earlier in the service, right? Jesus said, that if I fear, what? I should come to him. No one else can be my shield. I should come to him. You know what that is? Psalm 3. psalm of anxiety and fear and in the midst of it he says you are my shield surrounding me Jesus said that if I fear I should come to him in the dawn treader as they seek to flee and escape They find themselves rowing and rowing, but unable to escape the darkness. And Caspian turns to his captain, Drinian, and he says in a very low voice, How long did we take rowing in? Five minutes. Maybe ten, perhaps. Why? Because we've already been rowing more than that trying to get out and yet are no further than we were. Drinian's hand shook on the tiller and the line of cold sweat ran down his face. The same idea was occurring to everyone on board. We shall never get out. Never get out, moaned the rowers. He's steering us wrong. We're going around and around in circles. We shall never get out. the stranger who had been lying in a huddled heap on the deck sat up and burst out into a horrible screaming laugh. Never get out, he yelled. That's it, of course. We shall never get out. What a fool I was to have thought they would ever let me go as easily as that. No, no, we shall never get out. Lucy lent her head on the edge Of the crow's nest and whispered, Aslan, Aslan, if ever you loved us at all, help us now. The darkness did not grow any less, and yet little by little she began to feel better. Look, cried Renief. Hoarsely from the boughs, and a tiny speck of light ahead appeared. And while they watched the broad beam of light, they saw a bird, what appeared like a cross. It looked like an aeroplane, then a kite, and at last they saw it was an albatross flying overhead. It circled three times around the crow's nest and perched for an instant near, next to Lucy. On the dragon's pant, oh, and then gli- and gilded uh, dragon at the prow. It called in a strong, sweet voice what seemed to be words that no one understood. After, it spread its wings, rose, and began to fly slowly ahead, bearing a little to starboard. Drinian steered after it, not doubting that it offered good tidings. But no one except Lucy knew that as it circled the mast it had whispered to her Courage, dear heart And the voice, the voice she was sure was that of a lion The lion, Aslan What C.S. Lewis is picking up is that even in the darkness, even in the worst of fears, even if the worst of nightmares comes to be, that Aslan is still king, even in that world. That God will still be God, even if the worst should happen. And we are invited Not to deny our doubts and anxieties, not to simply express them, but to pray them. And to bring them before the King of kings who has wounds of grace. The one who holds our future in his hands and yet knows what it means for his knees to shake and tremble. that we can pray our anxieties to the one who is sitting on the throne and yet also remembers the despair of the garden. How about we pray? Our Lord and King, we ask now this morning that you might still our souls, that you might calm our fears from the conflict that is to come, from the uncertainty that is ahead. We pray that we might, that we might be those who entrust ourselves to you. And we pray that you might help us in our weakness to follow in the pattern of your son. We pray this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.